Chapter 8 of The Gentle Persuasion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Gentle Persuasion, Sketches of Scottish Life by Alan Gray. An old ferrant laddie. I was quite a stranger in my new parish when I first made the acquaintance of James Morton, one of the brightest and most original characters it has ever been my fortune to meet. He was then but a boy of sixteen, but somehow or other one never thought of him as a boy. There was an indescribable something about him which called up to one's mind the oft-quoted text from the Book of Wisdom. He being made perfect in a short time hath fulfilled a long time. A little matter of parochial business led me to pay a visit to the house of Glen Douglas, and, the weather being fine and the roads in good shape, I set out to make the journey on foot. I had left the main road which led over the cairn, and was passing along the magnificent beach avenue that formed the approach to the mansion house, when I came upon a party of two who had taken up their position at a point from which could be obtained an excellent view of the house and its surroundings. In an invalid's wheelchair was seated a lad of striking appearance, young and yet having an air of maturity that compelled attention. He was engaged in making a watercolor sketch of the scene before him, occasionally making a remark to a tall, sweet-faced woman who leant over the back of the carriage and whom I rightly surmised to be his mother. I had noticed her in church at the early communion service on the previous Sunday and had been struck by her quiet and unassuming but reverent demeanor. Raising my hat, I wish them a good morning. I know you are church folks, and I am sorry that I have not been able to call upon you as yet. Ere long, I hope to get over the whole parish. I do not need to tell you who I am, but may I ask to whom I am speaking? The young lad turned his head and respectfully saluted me, blushing as he did, and it was only when the blood mantled into his cheeks that one thought of him as a boy. His mother dropped a curtsy with a grace that told its own tale, and replied, I am Mrs. Morton, sir, and this is my eldest son, Jamie. He is not very strong, but he dearly loves, when it is at all possible, to get out of doors and do a little sketching. Her accent was distinctly Scotch, but I could easily perceive that she was a woman of education and refinement, and while there was just a breath of pathos in her speech, there was at the same time a note of dignity and independence that warned me to be very guarded in what I had to say. I glanced at the sketch, and even my dilettante knowledge of the canons of art could tell that there was an undeveloped genius who only needed a master's guidance to produce really good work. "'Has your son had any lessons, Mrs. Morton?' I said. "'No, sir, I am sorry to say. We have not been able to arrange for that as yet.' My husband died three years ago, and I've been so much taken up with providing a home for my little flock that lessons have been out of the question. My boy has been unable to move about like other bairns, which has not lessened the difficulty. But he's a very sensible lad, Mr. Gray. He knows that it's God's will he should be as he is, and he's quite content. Some day, no doubt, all will be light." It was not what she said, but the manner of saying it, which told me that I was speaking to one whose faith was a real living principle, 
and who recognized the loving hand of the Father of love, even in the heavy affliction laid upon her. I was touched by what I heard, and resolved to take an early opportunity of improving my acquaintance with the artist and his mother. At present my engagement called for my moving on, so I shook hands warmly with both, and went on my way to the big house. As I neared it, and noted the sweet sylvan peacefulness of the surroundings, I could understand the evident pleasure afforded to the young artist by the scene. Here was an excellent specimen of Scottish castellated architecture, with round towers and high-pitched roofs, the white hurled walls showing up in marked contrast to the lovely green ivy that in many places clung to them, and in the foreground a verdant lawn studded with trees that had seen centuries of growth, one in particular, a copper-colored beech, lending to the picture a bright tint that was very charming. It was easy to understand such a scene, appealing to all that was romantic and artistic in the boy's mind. On the Sunday following, I was delighted to hear the wheels of the invalid chair passing up the nave of the church just before the commencement of evening service, and still more so to note the keen, intelligent eyes of my young friend looking up into my face as I stood in the pulpit. It is very hard sometimes to explain the cause of one's confidence, but somehow or other I felt I had come into touch with one who would understand me, and who, in his own way, would be a source of encouragement to me. How fully this was realized I only knew when I was called upon to say goodbye, for a time, till the day break and the shadows flee away. A day or two afterwards I paid my first visit to Jamie's home. Mrs. Morton herself opened the door in response to my knock and ushered me into her modest sitting room. It was a quaint, old-fashioned room with open rafters, black with age. Near the big open fireplace, Jamie sat in his easy chair reading. I was introduced to the other members of the little household, and a chair was given to me in the family circle. At first my artist was shy and did not say much, but when I told him of visits I had paid to the National Gallery and the exhibition of the Royal Scottish Academy in Edinburgh, his eyes sparkled again and he could not help exclaiming, I wonder, Mother, if I'll ever be able to gang and see them. My, that would be grand. My eye happening to light on a beautiful old corner cupboard through the glass door of which I could see a fine tea set of china, decorated with grotesque dragons in a lovely shade of green, I remarked on the uncommon character of the design. Jamie seemed pleased with my notice of them and said, I suppose they dragons are intended to represent the devil. Is it no funny, sir, what queer notions folk hail old Nick? I often read Burns' address to the Dale. And Dr. Gerard, that was here afore you, lent me a copy o Faust. Sign, Milton, has his idea old Satan in Paradise Lost, and Scott has a heap to say on demonology in the Waverley novels. I've thought a lot about it, and my opinion is that he has a sorts o' gifts and graces, or else he wouldn't have been able to get folk to pay any attention to him. I think the devil, if he has any shape of all, is a handsome child. What do you think? I tried to explain my ideas on the subject and quoted the passage from St. Paul, which speaks of Satan as among men in the guise of an angel of light. We chatted away cozily for a considerable time, 
Mrs. Morton putting the closure on the subject by saying that she would give us a cup of afternoon tea, which would speedily exercise a demon from the old china. Many a chat did we have afterwards on similar subjects, and many a delicious cup of tea did we have out of the cups with the green dragons upon them. Not long after this, Mr. Pryor, an English artist, came to stay for a time in my parish. A mutual friend brought the two artists together, and the elder assumed a brotherly tutelage of the younger. Inaccuracies in drawing were corrected, and much valuable instruction was given in technical detail. Jamie was grateful for the help given him, but he never became an imitator of the style of his friend. In spite of much that would be termed crude, there was a bold dash about his own work, which was far more in keeping with the rugged character of the landscapes that he tried to reproduce. He had imbibed, with all the fervor of his poetic temperament, the spirit that breathed in the hills and dales of his own land. His firs were Scotch firs, his streams were not gentle English brooks, but brawling Scotch burns, leaping over granite boulders, his clumps of fern and braesides of heather made one recall Atoon's Killicranky in the burial march of Dundee. It was very amusing to hear Jamie criticize his friend's work. He could be very sarcastic when he liked, but there was no sting in his sarcasm. They make fine pictures for a young lady's scrapbook or for a Christmas card to send doom to England, where the folk want a thing done in their own way. But losh me, there's no Scotsman would ever take them for pictures of this country. He's over particular about getting ilka blade of grass or the rich sheep. You can lay them down on the table and look at them through a magnifying glass, and they'll look real bonny. But hang them upon the wa, and they dinna give you any idea of the hail thing as you see it in nature. There was a great deal of truth in what Jamie said, and there was not a grain of bumptiousness in him when he said it. He was not satisfied with his own work, and longed for the time to come when he would be able to take a course of study in Edinburgh. At last it came. Through the kindness of friends, arrangements were made for his going to the life school in the National Gallery, and his mother and he set out for the great metropolis, leaving the other children at home in charge of their grandparent. For two seasons he studied hard and made wonderful progress in spite of the serious difficulties that had to be overcome. Every day a strong man had to take him in his arms and carry him up the long stone stairs leading to the gallery. He was then placed in his chair, from which he could not move unless with his mother's aid. But he was brimful of enthusiasm, and his patience and perseverance were amply rewarded. His homecoming was hastened by the sickness of the sister next to him in age. She also had been an invalid for years, and had required a great deal of care. Her weakness, however, had not been without good fruit. Her faith was strengthened, and her disposition, naturally sweet and placid, had an added sweetness and calmness which endeared her to all who knew her. She was endowed with the same artistic taste as her brother, although not in the same degree. During the second winter of Jamie's absence from home, she contracted a severe cold, which developed into pneumonia. Everything that could be done was done, but she had no rallying powers. We sent for Mrs. Morton, who at once returned home, leaving Jamie in Edinburgh in the care of his younger brother. 
In two days it was evident that she could not, humanly speaking, recover, and I set out for Edinburgh to bring home the two brothers. What a sad journey that was. On the way home I tried to be as cheerful as possible and to prepare both lads for what I felt to be the inevitable. Very little was said, but it was easy to see that Jamie was deeply moved and that he realized upon how slender a thread his own life hung. By some misunderstanding on the part of the railway officials, there was no order given to stop the train at our station. Here was a dilemma. I alighted at the nearest station at which the train was scheduled to stop, carried my poor boy into the waiting room, and then set out to procure a closed carriage to convey us over the last seven miles of our weary journey. It was a bitterly cold night, and I was greatly alarmed lest Jamie should catch cold. Not a word of complaint escaped from him, not the least token of impatience, although I could see that his heart was full to bursting. Late at night the carriage drew up at the door. The poor mother came out to greet us. She did not require to speak. The set look of distraction in her face told us the sad news. We were too late by some hours. For a time both Jamie and his mother shrank within themselves, as if they would bar an outsider from the sacred privacy of their grief. True to their Scotch nature, they did not wear their hearts upon their sleeves for daws to peck at. But Father Time is a great consoler, and Jamie and I resumed our companionship as of old. My weekly visit to him was eagerly looked forward to by both of us. When I was feeling in the dumps, Jamie's quaint drolleries would act like a charm and restore my wonted cheerfulness. Often when he was out in his wheelchair, he would hear all sorts of humorous things, which he never failed to retail to me in his own inimitable way not infrequently illustrating the same with a few deft strokes of his pencil. The simple villagers little thought that they were being analyzed, and all their weaknesses and peculiarities cartooned, mentally if not actually, by one of themselves. I had a visit for old Joseph Sean the day, he said to me on one occasion. Nothing will suit the poor Bodie, but I'm on paint his picture. I told him that I was gay busy just now, but I would see what I could do later on. What do you think he said, sir? If I were to come round that night, after I gotten my supper, you could put on the first coat of paint, and sign it would be dry for the second coat the morn's night. Poor old Joseph, he thinks that a portrait is painted like a barn door. He has been out of sorts lately, so I spared what was the matter with him. Wheel man, he said. I saw the doctor on Monday when he was over by, and he said it was a stomach tribble. You see, there's two kinds of it. There's digestion and indigestion. And a deal a bit of me minds Wilkerdam's the matter with me. Another day I found him simply bubbling over with merriment over an encounter he had had with the Free Kirk minister. The minister, in the course of conversation with him, had made some slighting remarks about the Episcopal Church as being full of empty forms. Man, said Jamie, pretending not to understand what he meant, you rang there, or Kirk had ne'er empty forms. Yeah, there's Sunday night we had most of the young folks fray the free Kirk there, as well as our own. We've ne'er empty forms new. As I've already said, Jamie was an old foreign laddie, bright intellectually and spiritually, brimful of humor, 
and yet yearning with all the force of his intense nature to see right into the heart of things, content to endure great weakness of body in the full belief that one day he would leave all his infirmities behind him and stand without a single flaw in the presence of his master. It is many years now since he shook off the trammels of earth, but when I meet him again I shall know him and shall be glad. End of chapter 8 Read by Bryce Cries, Youngstown, USA, August 30th, 2021.